Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. I don't like adverbs, so I rarely use adverbs when I'm introducing a character, especially when I'm introducing the villain in my story. I stay away from adverbs. It's like, I don't say this person quickly moved out of the way. I say, he jumped out of the way. What, what I try to teach folks around me is, adverbs is the lazy writer's word. Don't use uh, adverbs. Please rise, court is now in session. All right, well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. Uh, I am your host, Steve Lowry, here with Yvonne Godfrey. Uh, Yvonne, how are you doing in um, whatever day of quarantine this is? I'm doing good. I um, All the good snacks are gone. Yeah. So I only have the stuff I don't want to eat, which is probably for the best. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I can't complain seeing what other people are doing out there and, you know, first responders, medical providers, grocery store workers, all that stuff. I'm yeah. like, I really can't complain about anything. Yeah, you know, I've heard a lot of stories about people who are at work who aren't allowed to wear uh, personal protective gear. And uh, I just don't know how, how people do that nowadays. Yeah, well, and then I think there's other the other people that can wear it if they can find it. And right. Um, you know, it's crazy times, but, yeah. uh, but thanks to, uh, zoom and technology, we can still do our podcast. Yeah. And actually I can't remember if we said this in the last one we recorded, but it's really the same for us. It's probably the only thing that's remained exactly the same as how we do the podcast. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, uh, we've been doing zoom the whole time. And so, uh, so as we were saying before, Yvonne, you and I had a leg up on everybody else in our office. Cause we already... <laughs> knew what we were doing. We already knew how to use Zoom. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, I want to go ahead and introduce our guests today. So uh, we have three uh, fantastic lawyers from Bakersfield, California. So they're all the way on the other side of the country. Uh, but we've got here with us uh, Daniel Rodriguez, Danai uh, Gonzalez, and Chantal Trujillo, uh, all from uh, Rodriguez and Associates. And you can look them up at rodriguezlaw.net. That's rodriguezlaw.net. How are you guys doing? We're doing fine, thank you. We're, I walked into a grocery store this morning and I was reluctant. I hesitated about, I only had a bandana and I thought, a, a guy with a brown skin walking in with a bandana, that's not a good recipe. That's not a good formula. I, I, I was telling my wife, I was like, this is a good time to be a, to be a, a Western bank robber right now. Well, um, well, let me introduce, let me tell everybody about you guys and, and, and give a little bit of background so they can know who we're talking to. I'll start with you, Daniel. Uh, so Daniel, I was reading that, uh, you, uh, have a very interesting background. You started out, uh, I mean, started out as a child, as a migrant farm worker, moving, uh, between four different, uh, states, uh, and have, uh, held all kinds of jobs, including a dishwasher, uh, sold encyclopedias, uh, all before uh, deciding to uh, go to uh, Cal Poly State University and get your engineering degree and then move on to UCLA Law and get your law degree. Uh, since then, you've just uh, had a fantastic career uh, as a lawyer and, and in the Bakersfield in California. Um, and I should note that you are a teacher at uh, Jerry Spence's Trial Lawyers College, which is a uh, um, very prestigious, and uh, have been a super lawyer every year since 2009, and were voted as the best lawyer in Bakersfield in 2015 
Oh, and I, and I saw this in there too. And I wanted to ask you about it because I don't really understand the oil industry, but I saw that you uh, were a roustabout. What, what, what's a roustabout? Roustabout is just a fancy word for a laborer. Okay. You're at the bottom of the, of the totem pole. Uh, in, that was one summer. And then the second summer working out there as an engineering major, oil companies back then wanted to hire people like myself. And in the following summer, I worked as a mechanic. And a mechanic working on a, not little pistons like this on a car, but pistons on a steam engine that were about this big. Oh, <laughs> That is uh, that's fascinating. Uh, yeah, and when I saw Rouse about it, I, I you know I, I never exactly knew what that was, so I'm I'm glad uh, I finally learned after all this time. Um, let me uh, let me move on to Chantal. So Chantal is a native from Bakersfield, California. She's a graduate from the University of Texas, uh, and then uh, went to St. Mary's University uh, School of Law. And uh, and Chantal, I understand that you're known for uh, uh, working late nights and extra hours in order to get uh, just great verdicts for your client. Uh, and I also saw that you have a Yorkapoo named China. <laughs> yes. And out of all the things that you said, the most important is the Yorkapoo. No. Which <laughs> 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 actually, she's upstairs right now. <laughs> oh, she's in the office right now? Yeah, I was like, oh, <laughs> she's going to make a special appearance. Um, yeah. No, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I'm working in my office and my uh, paralegal is downstairs with her dog here too. So I think everybody's <laughs> taking this time to uh, make sure they bring the whole family. Yeah, exactly. You know, bond with the fur babies. <laughs> Absolutely. I've, I have never wanted a dog more than during this whole social isolation thing. I'm <laughs> yeah. allergic, so um, oh, I don't wow. have one. But I, right now, I feel like no, it's worth it. It's worth the allergies to just to have <laughs> just to have a dog in the house. <laughs> you have some socialization, some contact. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, and then uh, Denai uh, Gonzalez, we'll move on to you. And, and uh, uh, we were talking about this before. I am pronouncing it right. It's deny, like uh, like what a, a judge might do is deny. <laughs> Yes, that is correct. I uh, that's my name. <laughs> and and yeah, <laughs> and Denai, you are you were born in Bakersfield, but grew up in Lamont. Uh, and I'm not familiar with the uh, with, with the area out there, but I'm guessing that Lamont is close by uh, to Bakersfield. Uh, also went to UCLA uh, and then went to the Chapman Chapman University School of Law. And I understand that uh, what you like to do on your um, uh, on your own time is uh, sing both English and Spanish ballads. Yeah, so singing is my other calling, and I'm fortunate enough to continue singing here in Bakersfield. Um, I have a couple of local commercials where I sing in them, and so I'm known as a singing lawyer. Very nice. Very nice. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah. maybe, 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 uh, maybe at the end, maybe we can get you to sing a little bit for us. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> I bet you didn't know you're going to be asked that. No. <laughs> See, if I may, to put it in context, when you said that I grew up in Lamont, Lamont is about two miles, three miles from the labor camp that John Steinbeck wrote about in his book of in his Grapes of Wrath book. Oh That's wow! An actual place. And it's an actual labor camp. By the way, I lived there as a kid part of the time because it was a labor camp. Wow. But if you're familiar with Great Sarath, Lamont yeah. is three miles away from that labor camp. Farm wow. Labor camp. Yeah. And I, I mean, speaking of Steinbeck, my, my daughter right now is reading of Mice and Men uh, for, for a class. So we were just talking about that. 
Yeah. Man, there has been, we've already had covered so many fun facts. I don't even, I don't even know if we need to talk about the case. Except <laughs> right. Of course we, of course we do, because it's, I'm very excited to talk about this case. Yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's the first in the country and maybe only one that, that I've really heard of, but it involved a, a school shooting, a tragic school shooting uh, out at uh, Taft Union High School in uh, Kern, County, uh, uh, California. The name of the case is Bo Cleveland versus Taft Union High School District. Uh, and it was tried. Uh, the, the shooting itself happened in January of 2013. Uh, but the case was tried in July of 2019 and resulted in a uh, $3,800,000 verdict uh, on behalf of, of Bo Cleveland. And uh, 54% of that was allocated to the school district. And I think the other uh, percentage was allocated to um, the uh, young man who shot him uh, and his family. Um, but just to give a brief overview of the facts, I, and I may have some of this wrong, so correct me where, uh, if, I, if you need to, but I understand, I think Bo was a sophomore in high school and the young man who, uh, who uh, shot him was also a sophomore. His name was Brian Oliver. And, uh, and essentially, um, there had been a... Uh, a sort of a history of um, of Brian being bullied by uh, various people, and I think there was some dispute over whether or not Bo was involved in some of that. And then uh, a number of reports from students, from teachers, uh, and even from a parent, I, I think I saw, of this, uh, activity that showed that he was uh, uh, threatening people. He, he talked uh, many times about shooting people. Uh, talked at one point, I think, was sort of bragging that he thought he could kill 50 people in the school uh, when he was on a field trip. Uh, and that all of this was coming to the uh, attention of the school, including the uh, um, uh, assistant principal and a, um, and a counselor. And essentially, uh, nothing was done about it. No, uh, no action was taken uh, uh, by them. And then there was a couple of other issues like for instance, there were 43 cameras at the school that weren't being monitored. Uh, there was a gate that should have been locked. And, you know, and, and you showed at trial uh, that um, had they been watching the cameras, uh, they would have seen uh, Mr. Oliver come through the gate and could have uh, 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 sounded an alarm. Yeah, could have locked down the school and sounded an alarm at that point. But since nobody was nobody was monitoring it, uh, he was able to walk in, uh, walk into the classroom where Bo Cleveland was shot, and and uh, shot Bo Cleveland with a 12 gauge shotgun in the chest. Uh, Bo uh, miraculously survived, um, and I think he was uh, Mr. Oliver was trying to at least shoot one other student, uh, and I have his name somewhere, but I don't I don't know what I did with it. Um, but uh, but wasn't able to shoot that student. So Bo was the only one uh, who got shot and uh, and was able to survive. But with just some horrific uh, injuries, uh, he, he got shot in the chest and and had numerous surgical procedures uh, and just a tremendous amount of uh, mental and physical uh, pain and suffering. And uh, I know that's a very brief overview of the facts of the case, but um, but I. Um, Tell me what I what I missed there, and I'm sure a lot. No, you you got the the gist of it. Uh, this shooting took place 27 days after Sandy Hook, and why is that relevant? 
It's relevant because the school was on even more notice as were all school districts across the country. And this shooting took place about uh, 11 years after Columbine. Why is, why is that important? Because after Columbine, most school districts across the country, including Taft Union High School, had set into place a protocol known as threat assessment, a threat assessment system that was set up. It was, it was a very good system. The problem with, with it is the red flags were identified that you talked about, about these numerous threats made by this kid who eventually shot both. Uh, but they were ignored. So you can have the best system in place ever, but it doesn't, it's not worth a darn if you decide not to follow it and to ignore all the red flags. Yeah, and I saw, uh, I, I didn't realize that it was 27 days after Sandy Hook, but I saw that on the day that this happened, they were actually doing an active shooter drill. Uh, and, you know, just uh, just by happenstance, uh, that it happened to be the same day that, that, uh, that Mr. Oliver came in and, and, um, and shot Bo Cleveland. Yeah, interestingly enough, like you mentioned, before school opened for the students, the staff got there early and they were going through a drill on what to do if there was an active shooter, including sounding an alarm. <laughs> but you're not gonna sound an alarm if nobody's watching any of the 43 cameras in place put there for the purpose of preventing such a thing from happening. Uh, Yvonne, tell our listeners what kind of lawyers we are. Oh man, we are, well, we're plaintiff's lawyers, we're trial. Yeah, we are plaintiff's lawyers and plaintiff's lawyers only get paid when what happens? When you get a good outcome for your client, either settlement or trial. That's right. When you close the case, as uh, as our friend Alec Baldwin says, always be closing. That's when you get paid. <laughs> and the best thing that can help you get paid is a good case management system. And so we are talking about CasePacer.com. That's CasePacer.com. It is a case management system that is cloud-based, designed by personal injury lawyers for personal injury law firms. Yeah, and Steve, one of the things that's really cool about it is that it's case-based pricing instead of the number of users. So the expense makes sense for the size of case and the complexity of the case that you have, but as many people as you need to can use it. Right, so if you're doing something like a mass tort litigation where you might have lawyers from all over the country helping out on it, all of them can access Case Pacer without increasing the price of using it. It helps you move your cases forward. They have secure, anywhere, anytime access. And then what I thought was really cool is this discovery app that they have on their system. Yeah, for our lawyer listeners, you and your staff spend a lot of time dealing with your clients, getting information from them, getting documents from them. And Case Pacer has this app that will actually help you with intake and with getting documents from potential and current clients. Yeah, so it makes it really easy to handle, uh, especially a large number of cases. And it's cloud-based. I hear people say that all the time. I don't really know what it means. It just means that it's uh, some sort of uh, magic is going on out there, but it's based in the cloud. Cloud-based is good. You can get online or you can use the app to access your case management info from anytime, anywhere. We encourage our listeners to check out CasePacer.com. You can also call them at 317-218-4715. That's CasePacer.com. And tell them that we sent you because this podcast runs on caffeine and help from our sponsors. I thought it was interesting 
that um, it seemed like in the opening that one of the things that the attorneys for the school district said was that they almost pointed out it was weird. They were like talking about the number of shooting statistics or how common school shootings were almost like that was a defense versus arguably making this more foreseeable. I was very confused by that. Yeah, you're right. We, we were sitting there and we're listening to the opening statement. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, is he representing the school district or us? At least at that, in that <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it didn't make much sense. I, I don't know what he was trying to do. If he was trying to normalize it and say, Hey, things like this happen, no matter what you do, because there's so many of them that happen. I, I really don't know the reason. That's the only thing I could come up with. Yeah, and there was a couple of other things that I, I thought were interesting, and I wasn't sure where uh, he was going with that on the defense. But the, the fact that he was trying to point out that, that this was a targeted shooting, and maybe this was based on something that one of his experts was going to say later in the case. Uh, but I, was, I wasn't sure why that would be that relevant if they had the, you know, one, they obviously had prior knowledge that that um, this person had made threats. Uh you know, they had the ability to stop him before he got into the school. So what would it matter if it was a targeted shooting? I guess unless he was saying, unless he was going to put up evidence that no matter what they did, that he was going to find some way in order to shoot Bo Cleveland. I think Chantel can speak to that. Sure. Yeah. One of the big things, and you're right, the expert, they had an expert that kind of touched on that. That was their focus. Um, one of the big things is that they wanted to push off as much fault as possible onto the shooter, right? And um, so the more they made it about a targeted shooting, the more focus that they were able to put onto the shooter. And then to add more on top of it was they the school district kind of took this approach that, yeah, we have this notice, but both Cleveland was never identified specifically. So... And because this was a targeted shooting specifically against Bo, we couldn't have known. It, it was a really weird strategy that didn't make much sense to us. And I don't think it made much sense to the jury. So, yeah, <laughs> I had. About that? Uh, yeah. the, the challenge in this case was every trial is a drama, which means what? It's a story. And every good story has what? It has a protagonist and an antagonist, a hero and a villain. The villain here, obviously, the school district wanted to say the villain was the, the, the obvious one, the shooter who got convicted and is sitting in prison and going to serve, I forget now, 27 years to life or something like that. Mm -hmm. So he was the easy guy to make the villain. So our job was to take that focus away from the shooter, not what happened that day, because the defense always wants to talk about what happened, what was the the situation, the shooting in this case. Well, if we talk about that, then, then we were scrutinizing all the choices made by that person. What we wanted to do was to start the story earlier. Everybody knew what happened. The shooting happened. The more interesting question and the better question for us is why did it happen? What was the motive? What could the school district, that way we get to scrutinize the choices made by the school district for 10 months they ignored numerous red flags. This kid, this eventual shooter saying, I'm going to blow up the auditorium. I'm going to shoot 50 kids. I'm going to poison kids. I'm going to do this. 
he wrote a story about it. All these things that came to the attention of the school district. So our challenge was to take the jurors' attention and put it earlier, much earlier, 10 months before the shooting happened. Because that way, when you tell the story, it's now we're looking at the motivation for the and then what was the motivation? And, and I told the jury, we'll never know why it is that the that why it is that the administrators chose to ignore all these things. Was it because they were more interested in the, the school image, in their jobs? Uh, they were just sloppy, they were just lazy, or were they indifferent? That's probably we don't have to come up with a motive, but it's up to you folks to come up with that. So that was a challenge in the case is to scrutinize because there's a psychological principle that I've never seen in a book, but I'm sure I, it came from somewhere. We are more critical of that which we are most familiar with. We are more critical of that which we are most familiar with. So if your story is all about the shooter, we're going to be scrutinizing his choices. But if our story is about the school administrators and the choices they made, so now the, the narrative spotlight is on the choices of the school district, of the administrators. So that was what we were trying to do. We spent most of our time talking about the school, the information they had, what they did with the information, their ultimate choices, and why they chose to ignore all that. Yeah. I, I thought your opening was very effective in framing the story that way, to the point that by the time that the defense lawyer started his opening for the school, you know, what, it seemed like one of the things that he went into very early on was how quickly the, the school responded to the shooting basically after it had started. But you had already framed it as these months leading up to the shooting that it would, that, that seemed very obviously sort of not the point and not the problem because you had already framed the story around what happened leading up to that. And, and I think the way that you laid out, I was, I was shocked because I think sometimes you hear about these school shootings and there, they are these loners who aren't talking to people at school, who aren't, who aren't doing these things at school. And they have this other secret life that people don't know about. I was shocked by how much evidence you had of students reporting things to people in school and, and how many of these threats or, or, or statements were made and actions were done at school or on school trips. I mean, that like they just it's just the stuff that blows your mind. Like the student, I know there was a there was a female student who had reported thinking things were dangerous at least once and actually did the thing that's pretty hard for a high schooler to do. And it basically went nowhere. And that's called leakage. And almost 100 percent of all school shootings, the eventual shooter has leaked his intentions before because it is what denied? A, a cry for help. Oh, yeah. 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 And the reason I asked her, she's the one that came up with that idea. Right. <laughs> it was a cry for help. Yeah. Yeah, it seemed to me like it, 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 it's a cry for help, a cry for attention. That's why you mm -hmm. keep talking about it over and over. And, um, and then. And speaking of a cry for help, uh, Denai, do you remember the answer that the assistant principal gave in the deposition when she was asked about whether or not it was a cry for help? Which she told folks. She said she didn't think it was a crime to help at all. <laughs> I don't believe in that, she said. She didn't believe yeah. in it. Yeah. She said, I think I don't care for that word. Yes, huh. yes specifically. Yeah. I don't <laughs> care for that word. 
That's that's yeah, such an like yeah. That's such an odd response for somebody who spends their life working with uh, with teenagers. Um, yeah, that can't be the first time they've seen uh, actions like that. And, well, uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, you you go ahead, Chantal. Well, so I was going to say, I think another interesting point was, um, you know, obviously they wanted to put as much fault on this, this the book, the Brian Alder, the shooter, and then also his mom. And one way they were trying to do that was that they were saying, oh, well, she should have never allowed the shotgun in the house. And she should have known that her son was, you know, dangerous or things like that. Well, one huge piece of evidence that we had was there was a, Brian, the shooter, Brian Oliver, the student, was um, a special education student. And so that required a an IEP plan to be done for him. An IEP is what? Individualized education plan. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And so in there, you had these, well, let me back up. You had all these reports on that field trip, right, from the student and, and staff members. Then... They do um, an IEP plan about 12 days later that they give to the mom. And in that IEP plan, it says um, emotional social concerns. Nothing. Brian is a great student. He interacts well with his peers. This is not an area of concern. This is 12 days after he, the shooter on the school bus has threatened to shoot kids. And 12 days later, they write a report saying he has no social concerns. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's that's just crazy. And is this is this before or after? I know there was like an an incident where he was kind of like, sort of like miming or stabbing somebody with a pencil, and that was before, right? Okay, and this was right afterwards. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, it okay. was like all kind of, and it was right afterwards. And people who did the IEPs was one of them was the counselor, the school psychologist. And he was well aware of all of those reports, including that stabbing gesture one that was actually made directly to him. And so, and so the mom, you know, rightfully so takes the stand and she's like, they told me he was good. Like, I actually thought everything was okay. But, you know, what made you think that? Well, because there's this plan and I read it and I signed it. And so I had no reason to believe that there was anything going on. Yeah, I thought the, um, you know, I w- when I was reading the opening of the defense, I, I, I thought that, you know, he was, I guess, trying to react to uh, to your opening, Daniel, and you had sort of set it up nicely for him to have to explain away a lot of things. But for instance, you know, they were taking the position, they were essentially trying to say that this is all the shooter, you know, this is all Mr. Oliver's fault and, and his family's fault. But at the same time, he's giving all this evidence of what a like what great strides he was making and what a great kid he was. And it was like, well, how are you, you know, blaming him at the same time that you're, you're saying that, that uh, he, he was doing great. And then the other part, I, I, you know, when I, when I saw him doing this, he was sort of going through each one of the red flags that you had raised and then was giving a different explanation for it. And I was just thinking to myself that whenever you're in that position where you're just explaining away red flag after red flag. That's just never a good position to be in, in the courtroom. We have a saying, Lucy, if you're explaining, you're losing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, t- 
talk a little bit about so <clears throat> you had uh, it, it seemed pretty good evidence that uh, that Bo was a well liked um, uh, student seemed to be popular with everybody and that he wasn't uh, a bully uh, or hadn't been involved in bullying of um, of of Brian Oliver but you know there had been some statements I think by by uh, Brian Oliver and by his mother at his criminal trial um, that he was that he had been involved in the bullying and and then the um, um, the fact that he that he he basically was targeted, you know, by um, by Brian Oliver, I guess in in on one level might suggest that he may have been involved in some bullying. Um, talk about how you approached that issue because I mean it's not a justification for you know what happened, but um, you know I, I it certainly seems to be a, a, a an attempt to. Uh, Maybe, maybe maybe make it sound like like Bo had it coming or something like that. I know exactly. You see, on an intellectual level, we all say things like, "Well, that wouldn't justify." But you know, then the, the words come. But he did bully him. At least that was the contention of the defense. And it was disappointing for us, at least, that the trial judge said we object and said, "What's the relevancy of that if the defense has already?" already taken the position that there's no contributory negligence on the part of both. If there is no contention that he contributed, he contributed to his own you know, situation, why is this relevant? None of this should be coming into evidence because right. a lot of it's hearsay. For example, the mom, when you drill down on her, her testimony, it was based on hearsay. So it should be tossed out. So we went through this and the judge overruled our objection and said, no, the defense, I'm going to allow the defense to put on this testimony, and we're scratching our heads and but wait a minute. What's the relevance if there is no contention of contributory negligence? Right, right. And then, so then it has no probative value. It only has prejudicial value. So why is it coming? That's one of our points on appeal, that that should never have come in. Okay. And then at the end of the case, the defense gets up, and they change their mind and they're telling the judge now they want Bo Cleveland's name to appear on the special verdict form mm -hmm. for allocation or division of fault. Luckily, the judge shut that down because we objected. Wait a minute. All along, he's been a, he's been saying that there is he got up and told the jury that Bo's a very nice kid. And, and I call it the, the, you know, bless her heart in the South. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. She's a really nice gal. Bless her heart. But, you know. Yeah. You know, that kind of, and and then the, the judge sustained our objection and said, no, I'm not going to put both Cleveland. But by then the damage had been done. Right. Even though when you drill down on each of these witnesses who said these things, there's only two or three of them, there was no basis for it. But emotionally, you know, there's an intellectual and there's an emotional. I think in the back of most people's head, both <clears throat> is a big kid. Right. Bo was like six, three, six, four, six, five at the time. He was like 300 pounds. In fact, that was one of the reasons he wasn't killed. Yeah. Can you imagine getting shot almost point blank with a 12 gauge shotgun and living? The only way he survived was because he had a, quite frankly, he had fat right. on his chest, you know. So that, that helped him survive. But Bo was a big kid. And at the time, Brian Oliver looked like a mousy little kid. Although 
when he testified in this trial by way of a videotaped deposition, I will tell you that he looked like a grown man and he had a tooth missing. He had a tooth knocked out by an inmate because, you know, uh, of this happening. He looked, and I'll, I'll say it right now, he looked like a serial killer. Yeah. He had a beard, and not to say that people with beards all are serial <laughs> Yeah, no. no, wait a minute now, hold on. <laughs> you know, but uh, so, he, and the way he spoke, and the way he looked, and it didn't help that he was in an orange uh, jumpsuit yeah. with handcuffs. <laughs> so he looked like a villain. Yeah, so I guess you, I mean, so once the judge denied, um, your uh your your motion to exclude that i mean you basically had to turn around and just and just hit it head on and and um you know and i i've, I've always uh talked a lot about a trial that you got to take your weaknesses and just hit them head on and i thought you did a great job of that uh in 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 you know hitting you know the, the fact that there were going to be some people who were going to say that that Bo had uh had bullied him but there were going to be a lot of people who were going to say that Bo was just a very nice uh, kid, sort of a big teddy bear and well-liked. Uh, and, you know, and you got to look at the motivations of the people uh, who, are, who are making those claims. So it's a, it, it, a, it was a nice job of, of um, adapting to what the, the uh, trial judge had, uh, had, had ruled. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So, yeah. So what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTS Atlanta. Com, legal technology services uh, give them a try so there was a they had the school had contracted with the city uh for uh some police presence and so they were basically supposed to have an officer uh i think it was called an sro uh, you know walk around the campus and, and provide some security uh and then for some reason that that particular day the officer uh, did not show up. And, and, and so I kept checking, 
the apportionment, you know, on the verdict form. And I'm like, well, why is the officer not on here if they're making some claim? Um, but, um, but yeah, so, so talk, I just want to make sure our listeners knew what we were talking about. So the officer who was supposed to be there for some reason didn't show up that day. Yes. Um, and so this particular day, you know, it was in January, right. And, um, it was cold. The officer, the SRO, which stands for a school resource officer, most high schools have them. Um, he lived out in Fraser park, which is kind of like a mountainous area. And so he had actually been snowed in that day. Okay. And so that's why he wasn't present. Um, and they fought tooth and nail to get to him on the verdict form. Uh, that was a daily battle to keep okay. the city of the, the police department off the verdict form because they wanted him on there so badly. And uh, But here's the legal reasoning why right. we were able to keep him on. In California, at least, there's a doctrine of non-delegable duty. A school district, because students are a special class, the school district owes a duty to keep to provide a safe place for studying, for education. And it is non-delegable. That means you cannot delegate it away. You can't say, oh, we're going to contract with somebody else, namely the, the police force, and give them that duty. So the judge understood that. But then when I said judge, since they can't be on the on the verdict form because it's non-delegable duty, and thank you for getting that reasoning right. Uh, <laughs> why is it relevant then? Yeah. That shouldn't be coming into evidence. Right. It's not relevant if ultimately the jurors are not going to be passing judgment on the conduct or misconduct of the school resource officer for not showing up on time. Why are we even talking about it? Why are, why are we allowing evidence, testimony in that regard? Right. I looked at me and said, uh, I'm going to allow it. <laughs> you know, despite his ruling. Uh, so anyway, another, as you said, that's going to be another uh, point uh, on appeal that we're going to argue about. That, that shouldn't have come into evidence. It's non-delegable duty. The, the trial court got it correct, but then turned around and let, allowed testimony regarding that issue to come in. Right. And I mean, and it seemed to me to be damaging. I mean, obviously you all got a terrific result, but it seemed to me to be damaging because it allowed them to act like it was totally somebody else's responsibility who had shirked that responsibility. And it was not the school, you know, it was not the school's fault or responsibility at all. Right. Yeah. And, and one thing that I think is also interesting on that point is that school resource officer, he had just started working there that school year, right? So the 2012-2013 school year. The question is, did he know anything about Brian Oliver? Did he know anything about the warnings that the red flags did, you know, the principal or the assistant principal ever tell him? Because he was supposed to be part of the threat assessment team. He was never told anything. He's like, I didn't even know who this kid was. They kept me in the dark about it. Mm -hmm. And... Um, you know, so then the question is, like, if you they don't feel like they need to share it with him, why would, why right. does it matter? Just, just to be clear on that point, the threat assessment team is made up of four individuals when they do a threat assessment and evaluate what they're supposed to do when some kid makes a threat. And that is the school administrator, which in this case was the assistant principal, school resource officer, the uh, school psychologist, and the guidance counselor. And they're supposed to communicate with one another. Our point was 
This school resource officer who had been there on the job since the fall, about a few months before the shooting took place, were you ever given any information of any of these threats made by the shooter, by Byron Oliver, before the shooting? Not one bit of information was ever given to him. So that was part of our contention was, wait a minute, they have this great uh, protocol in place, this system in place, but you're failing at so many levels in this system. You're not even communicating. Mm -hmm. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand does, is doing. Right. Yeah, and, and they, you know, I, part of the defense in the case was, you know, you're dealing with 900 teenagers. They're going through all kinds of, uh, uh, of, uh, you know, various problems, breaking up with, uh, with boyfriends, girlfriends, and you know, and they say stuff, and they get influenced by each other, and so it's it's a very, you know, difficult situation to manage, uh, you know, and and um, I, I thought you all did a really good job of addressing that, but, but talk a little bit about how you do address that issue because it, you know, I could see a jury, uh, you know, saying, yeah, you know what, this isn't an easy job. And, um, and, you know, do you, how do you know you can trust the, you know, some, uh, what somebody's saying that they might just be bragging just to be bragging and not be a, a true threat. And, and, and related to that looped into that to address the, the, the thought I think that some jurors would have, or at least potential jurors, that this is too much to put on schools or that this is the responsibility of parents or families. You know, we did a number of focus groups. We did a, a ton of focus groups. And that was one sentiment that was running through each one of these focus groups. Like, how do you control these kids? I mean, we as parents can't control oftentimes our kids that we have at home. And we expect this handful of teachers and administrators to keep a lid on the hormones running wild of 900 separate little starter humans. You know? Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so yes, and they really harped on that. You know, it's like, and their experts talked about that. It's like, hey, how do you know when they're just joking? How do you, people, an idle thread, something said in jest, something said in the heat of the moment. If we were to react to every one of these situations, we wouldn't have enough manpower we'd have to assign one or two adults to each individual student. That's 1,800 administrators, you know, something like that is what they were trying to argue. And it was very effective. Uh, so we had to deal with that. And the, the way we dealt with that is we had to kept keeping the focus on, it wasn't one time, it wasn't two time, it wasn't 900 students. There was only one student making over 10 months, a whole span of time, making all kinds of horrendous threats. I'm going to blow up the school auditorium. I'm going to bring an automatic weapon to, to school and shoot 50 people. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Just on and on. And how did the school react? One of the things was the school psychologist met with this shooter and said, to, and one of the, his recommendations was he recommended to him to read some books. Two books. Yeah. What, did, what were those two books? They were How to Be a Serial Killer. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. A profile of a serial killer and had to do with maim and shooting and mass shooting and the, the psychology of these serial killers. Oh so goodness. we had a field day on cross-examination oh of the school psychologist. 
for that. Well, and you know, and one thing I was thinking as I was reading this is because it seemed there was this issue of whether or not he had a, a hit list, <clears throat> and um, and that had apparently uh, sort of uh, hit the um, rumor mill for the high school and the surrounding high schools because there's a bunch of tweets about it, and I think even a parent uh, called up and said, "I heard my child is on this hit list." So on the one hand, you know, it 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 almost seemed like everybody in the school thought that he was capable of of doing something really dangerous and we're talking about it with each other. Uh, but yet the school didn't seem to think that. So uh, I, I thought that worked well in your favor on that, on that issue. Yeah. Denai, can you talk about how the, the parent that came in to testify and, uh, about his concern for his uh, son? Right. So we had a parent um, come in to court and testify and basically what he, he, told the jury that he expressed his concerns to the school and he was really afraid for his son. And despite that, he was told not to call the police. He was told that the school would take care of it and yet nothing was done. He wasn't taken seriously. And so it was really um, upsetting to him because it you know, continued on and then when all of this came out, it was just that fear grew. It was a growing fear that a lot of the students and the parents were experiencing um, during, like, in between that time. Yeah, that was shocking to me. Is that is that the same parent who he had coached one of the shooter's brothers in Little League and was like, I, I will go talk to, to his mom about it, and they the school told him, don't do that. Like, we've got yeah. it under control. Yes, that exact same parent. You know, he was trying to take the approach of how can I help this situation? You know, what can we do to you know, help the situation out. And he was discouraged from doing anything. Yeah. Can I go back to a point? Yeah. Here's what I played for the, let's see, can you see this? <laughs> hold, hold, hold it up a little bit. Oh, uh, you know, okay. What kind of books did the school of psychologists give to Brian Oliver to read? And it was Mind Hunter and the Anatomy of Motive. Yeah. Both having to do with serial killing. Right. This is one of the exhibits we used in closing argument. We weren't allowed to use any demonstratives during the opening. And I think it was helpful that I think Mindhunter um, was on Netflix. At the time. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, we're aware of that. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to, not that it matters, but I have to know what was the explanation for why those would be good books for him to read. <laughs> yeah. I don't remember. I, I cross-examined the school psychologist, and quite frankly, I was trying to keep a straight face because some of the answers he was giving, you know, I wanted to be respectful, and I know he was trying to be sincere, at least I thought he was trying to be sincere, and I don't remember his answer because when I do cross-examination, I'm just telling a story, and I don't really care what the answer mm -hmm. the witness is giving. I'm just telling a story, and I'm creating a yes set or a no set in as the case calls for. And I really don't listen to their answers. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he, if I, from what I can remember, because I was like, I wonder what he's going to say to this. Um, from what I remember, I think he said something like, well, he just seemed really be, like, to be interested in murders and killings. And I thought this would get him on the right track. Right? What? Like, <laughs> <laughs> the right okay, track for what? Exactly. Like, what's the right track? I guess in one way it was, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, and I think that the thing was, I, I, my understanding based on the opening was that 
and I'm not sure where this fell into the timeline, but at one point when then it was sort of pointed out somehow to administration about him making threats and stuff and struggling that he wasn't required to do counseling or anything, but that he was supposed to like check in with the school psychologist if he saw him in the hallway, like say hi or something. That was a dilemma for the defense. See, uh, they were taking the position that the school psychologist, because he was licensed by the state of California, he would be considered a like a medical provider. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he didn't. Um, he was immune. He was immune. OK, right. so but they were walking this fine line because if they said that. So he kept saying, I never treated him. I never counseled him. I just had him check in with me. OK. He, Got it. So so they were walking this fine line between I counseled him, I gave him therapy, and I didn't. Got it. You know, so my thing was you can't have your cake and eat it too. You got to fish or cut bait, you know. Right. Right. Or you weren't. And they they could never make up their mind. And so they were just waffling. But the jury, I think, didn't really care for the school psychologist by the time he got off the witness stand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to go back for a second to the to your focus groups, because one thing I was thinking about is that, um, you know, in, in a case like this, there might be, uh, you know, what we would call a jury bias for teachers and school administrators and people who are who are, you know, doing the best they can. And uh, I wonder if you did you see that in your focus groups and how did you uh, how did you choose to address that? Yes, we saw definitely saw that bias. So. Jurors, a jury is all about sociometry. Okay. It's what we call tribes. Okay. So at the trial lawyers college, one of the things that we teach is that we say, look, when you start out as a lawyer in the case, you are not a member of the tribe, the jury tribe. You're an outsider. The school teachers are part of of the tribe. So you a tribal member will never kill another tribal member. So first, if that tribal member, if that person is a part of the tribe, first you've got to drive them out of the tribe. And then it's okay to kill them. I'm speaking metaphorically. <laughs> <laughs> you drive them out of the tribe, and then it's okay to kill them. So how do you do that? So if it's a 1983 uh, civil uh, excessive force case, for example, I've tried a number of those, is a police officer, the person you're suing is a member of the tribe. So how do you drive them out? by giving facts that he is a rogue officer. He doesn't fit into the stereotype of what a good, or what expectations we have of a police officer. Same thing with school administrators. They start off as a member of the tribe, but member, as a, an administrator, the expectations you have of an administrator is that they're supposed to do their job, right? And part of the job is when you have overwhelming number of red flags, is you do something about it. Right. You have all these rules and protocol in place and you don't do it. So you can't just get up and say, this person's a bad person. You have to give facts. You can't give, you can't use conclusionary language. You have to give facts without ever using the, I, I don't like adverbs. So I rarely use adverbs in, when I'm introducing a character, especially when I'm introducing the villain in my story. I stay away from adverbs. It's like, I don't say this person quickly moved out of the way. I say he jumped out of the way. You know, I think adverbs is what, what I try to teach folks around me is 
Adverbs is a lazy writer's word. Don't use uh, adverbs. So here we created to, to combat this bias is just to give them facts when I was introducing the villain by his or her actions. It just so happens it was a school administrator. So now I, the idea was with these facts, this story, I have driven this school administrator out of the tribe and now it's okay to kill them. Yeah. I also think that it was helpful that you also had school administrators like librarians or computer techs that were also expressing their fears and so it's almost like a betrayal to the to their own, you know, family right. in a sense, you know, their students, the parents, and now even the staff. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digital law marketing. Com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you, you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah. And they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive, as you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're so, awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. When you laid out sort of the five issues for the case, several of them were, were basically things that wouldn't have been that hard to do, like just pass along the information you had to law enforcement or pass along the information you had to the other teachers or to the parents, you know, and so you're, you know, not only are you showing that they had a, a lot of information, but that it would really wouldn't have taken that much for them to make a difference here and to stop this from happening if they had just, not, you know, passed the information along. Right. And so when they fail to do that, how do you frame that? Do you frame it as a mistake or as a betrayal? Uh, what do we do generally with people who make mistakes as a society? Give them a pass. Forgive them. Yeah. Right. What do we do with people who generally betray us? We don't. <laughs> we we, we <laughs> kick them out of the it. tribe. Yeah. Right. So what? What is there? Three elements to a betrayal. One is that you create a trusted relationship. You show there's a trusted relationship. Two, you show there's a violation of that trusted relationship. 
And the third reason is for the wrong reason. So here, right. the school administrators, there was a trusted relationship between the parents, other teachers who looked to the school for protection. They violated that trust by not, and for what reason? Was there a good reason for them to withhold that information? There wasn't. So that was part of the betrayal story to drive the school administrator out of the tribe. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. No, that's I, great. No, I, I like it a lot. I, you, uh, you also said one other thing that I, I've had to deal with this in trials before, and it, it, it uh, definitely can make for an interesting opening. But um, you said the judge didn't allow you to use any demonstratives in your opening. Is, is that something that's unique to California, or is this just this particular judge? This particular judge, I'd say about more than 50% of the judges in California now allow uh, demonstratives in the, uh, in the opening. And you have a minority not allowing it. And in this case, this particular judge, for whatever reason, and he, he was overall a good judge, but I, but I was kind of ready for that because when I, I practiced my opening statement, I practiced it two ways. One with demonstratives, and just in case I'm not allowed to use them, then I switch over. So here, I went to a, I became a human timeline. So in yeah. the courtroom, there was a place that I would point to, and that was, you know, ten months before. And then I move over a month, and I would physically anchor that position and say, "Here's what happened." And I go into a story, and then I point down the timeline and say, "And then a month later, and I move over there, and finally I get to the day of the shooting." So and then whenever I would refer to those those events chronologically whatever time it was i would move to that point in the courtroom that i had created as a milestone in my timeline so i yeah. created a human timeline and it worked out for us yeah yeah i like that a lot because then without being able to use visual other visuals you're still creating you're still creating a visual for for jurors who learn that way, who will remember, you know, the different places you were standing and what you were saying when you were in that spot. And Yvonne, the proof is in the pudding. I would refer to a time, and before I would even go over there, I'd see the jurors move over there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Right. yeah. But I had marked at that event. That's right. great. That is great. I like that a lot. Well, um, related to things that are typical in California, this it looked like this case was bifurcated, liability and damages. Is that also typical in California? Uh, I'd say at least, what do you say, Shanta? Two-thirds of the time? Yeah. They'll grant the motion? Right, exactly. Especially when there's a lot of witnesses for liability that you can separate from the damages. And here, I, we didn't really have a good argument to that they should, you know, that bifurcation should not be allowed. Gotcha. It's discretionary. It's discretionary on the part of the trial court. Okay. So, as you know, on appeal, Abuse of discretion is a pretty high standard to show, and the judges all know that. So right. they're hoping, oh, this is such a tough case. If I bifurcate it and the plaintiff loses on the liability <laughs> phase, hey, it went from an eight-week trial to a four-week trial. Right, 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 yeah. Right. I can go fishing. Right. But, well, yeah, one thing I wanted to ask, I noticed that during the opening, you didn't have Bo in the courtroom. And I did you have him uh, out of the courtroom for most of the trial? And I, and I didn't actually see, did he testify? And, and how did he do if he, if he did? Well, I have to say, yes, we did not. I think we had him there for Vordire for the first day just to introduce him. And then we had, we 
we didn't have them there. And I explained to the jurors that the reason for that was that the, the mental health professionals, his therapist, they said it wasn't good for him to hear these gory details. So he wasn't there until he testified. As far as his testimony, I have to tell you that Chantel handled his direct and she hit it out of the ballpark. You could hit a, you could hear a pin drop while he was testifying on direct. She did a marvelous job with him. I think the jurors connected with both. He's such a good kid. He's a good human yeah. being. And Chantel had her work cut out for her because she had to undo the insinuations and outright accusations that Bo had bullied this boy, the shooter, when he hadn't. So the yeah. jurors already had that, you know, whirling around in their Mind. minds about that. And I think Chantel did a magnificent job. Thank you. <laughs> Chantel, can you can you talk a little bit about how how you approached that direct, both in terms of preparing for it and what you wanted to accomplish. Because I think it's hard, even with a client who hasn't been through such a traumatic experience, I think it's sometimes just hard for them to um, open up on the stand. But in in this particular situation, with what Bo had gone through, I I can't even imagine. So I'm really interested in hearing how, how you approached it. Um, yeah, th- that's a it's a good question. Uh, the, I think what really helped here is that Bo and I had a, a really good relationship. Um, I mean, it had been years, right, from the date of the incident to the trial. And so we were, we almost, we became friends. Like, and so he, I was fortunate enough to have his trust already. And we kind of vibed, um, not kind of, we did vibe, we're, and we're still friends. Um, as for, undoing like those thoughts and being, you know, conscious of that. I, you know, I told him, I'm like, oh, this is what's going on. This is what they feel. We need to address this. And he's, okay, let's, you know, let's do this. Let's figure out how we do it together. So one of the ways that we, or well, actually that Daniel had done in advance was we would show Bo doing nice things for other people, right? And that way they kind of saw him already as this kind, gentle person. Um, now as for the bullying issue, we, I think what, there was the one part about where Brian, the shooter had said that Bo bullied him and I had chased him up the stairs. So I addressed that issue flat out because I think the jury wanted to hear that, right? Mm -hmm. What was going on there? And Bo was like, I, I did, you know, we were going from class to class and, um, I was calling out his name. But I was like going to give him a hug, which there had already been testimony beforehand that Bo would do that. He would give hugs to people. And they, he'd been described as a big teddy bear by the staff and by other students. So I think it kind of fit, you know. And Bo, he is, um, I don't know how to say this. He can be a comic sometimes. Right. And there were a couple occasions where the judge had forgot to turn the microphone on, okay, in the in the courtroom. And Bo just, you know, it was very cute because he's like, Judge, I think this is not on. I think this right. is off. And it just lightened the mood with the jury. And the jury laughed. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, so, that's great. Yeah. You know. you know they like him if that happens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Can I speak yeah. to that point, please? Yeah. Uh, when you're writing a story, you're a Hollywood screenwriter. Uh the, the Hollywood screenwriters that are not very good, 
will use conclusionary language and show the villain and say, this is the villain. The good screenwriters show the character doing something bad and lets the audience come to that conclusion. Vice versa, if you start off with a character and you show him, let me give you an example. If the movie starts out with this character walking out of his apartment and walking down the steps and there's some kittens there and he kicks the kitten and the kitten flatters against the wall, oh, you're going to hate him. Okay, yeah. He's the villain. Nobody called him the villain. He wasn't wearing a black hat. He didn't have the word villain tattooed on his chest. You hate him. But if the story starts out him walking out of his apartment, the door, he turns around and there's a little kitten there. And it's about to walk out into the street. And here comes a transit bus. And he jumps and he picks up the kitten and saves the kitten. That's a hero. You didn't call him a hero. You didn't call him a good guy. You showed facts. So when you can show your character being in the service of others in your opening statement or through the testimony of others without, because you don't want your client taking or your witness taking the stand and say, are you a good guy? You <laughs> right. talk about exactly. the good things you do for <laughs> right. people. That's yeah. self-serving, obviously. So you do it through other uh, witnesses and other evidence, but you show your character being in the service, you know, being in the service of others. Then your audience is going to like him and identify him as a hero without you ever having to say, this guy is a stand-up kind of guy. You're going to hear that he's the greatest thing since sliced bread, which is unfortunately what a lot of us lawyers do. Right. That's not going to cut it. you got to show facts. Just a little vignette, a little story, when you introduce your character, will go a long ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I do want to move on uh, and, and make sure we get a chance to talk about damages. So so as uh, Yvonne already pointed out, the, the case was bifurcated between uh, the liability phase, which sounded like it took about three weeks, uh, and then the um, the damages phase. Um, and, you know, and, and I saw in your opening, Daniel, you know, I, you did a, uh, you know, really nice job of just putting yourself sort of in the shoes of Bo, uh, you know, after he's been shot. And um, talk about that a little bit and about, you know, uh, you know, how you showed the damages in this case and, and, um, and, you know, and how you conveyed that to the jury in your, in your opening and closing. It kind of goes back to what I just, just said a few minutes ago. And that is you want the jurors to like your client. You want a likable hero, but here's, Here's the key. You want a likable but flawed hero. Yeah. Okay? Because if he's perfect, he's boring mm-hmm. and he's not believable. So if you only put evidence that your client is perfect, you know, it's going to be boring and nobody's going to believe you. And by the way, the defense will always attack your client. So you're always going to have a flawed hero. Right, right. right. Okay? Yeah. Use that as part of your introduction you're part of the case uh, when you're when you're talking about your client and show him to be vulnerable. Then what I do is oftentimes the precipitating event, when I say precipitating, not the turn in the story structure, but what happens, the actual event. Oftentimes what I do is I reverse roles and I play the scene out in the courtroom. I use body language and I use words. And if you look at, I haven't looked, I hate to look at my opening statements or, you know, <laughs> or 
because then I God, I used the wrong grammar. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but you had to be there, okay? You had to be there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the pauses and your I, I reverse roles with my client and I put us I work out the scene in the courtroom. I and and I decide who am I going to animate? Is it my client, the plaintiff? Is it the defendant? Is it the bullets? Because it doesn't have to be a human being. It can be an inanimate object. I become the inanimate object. And I speak first person in present tense. Because when you do that, when you tell a story, not in the past tense, not in the third person, but in the first person in present tense, it brings the scene alive. And now you have the jurors in the scene with you feeling what the character is feeling. So that's what we try to do. We try to take that scene and bring it to life in the courtroom without using any props, without using any demonstrative evidence. And you you map out the scene. You put the, the school desk, you put the shotgun, you put you know all of that. You become those characters and there's more than one character. And you go through that. And again, the secret is first person, present tense. If you tell the story that way, people will remember it. Again, people don't remember what you tell them. People remember which, how you made them feel. Yeah. I do think that was effective even, even reading it. Cause I, I don't know if you've read it, but obviously I did. And, right. and I think that was effective even reading it in first person, reading in that way it was a lot easier to engage and imagine. Thank you. Yeah. 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 It worked. <laughs> Well, and, 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 you know, and just the uh, um, tremendous amount of surgeries that, that Bo went through, I think he had uh, 31 uh, medical procedures and then uh, and was on 33 different types of medications and then just sort of describing how, you know, when you get shot by all of these uh, pellets, you know, how they, you know, basically the, the um, process of, of getting those out, you can't just go in and take them out quickly some of them have to work their way out some of them will never come out and um and just and just how difficult that is and then when you you know we're talking about the fact that he was able to get a job but he would have to start out his day by taking 2000 milligrams of ibuprofen uh right. which is certainly uh you know i hate to say it, but it's certainly going to do damage to his uh, liver and kidneys i mean um it's just a, a huge amount of uh, of ibuprofen but he didn't have much choice, right? Right. Could he just stay home and feel sorry for himself, or yeah. go out and work and try to have some meaning to your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, just out of curiosity, um, when y'all approach a trial, obviously you you all know your case um, very well. But I'm curious how when you're getting close to trial and when you're in trial, if there's a specific way y'all like to divide up the work of the witnesses or whether you just all work on everything and kind of decide some of it as you go. Um, Cause we do it, I think depending on our trial team, we do it a few different ways. And of course everybody knows the case, but there's some things that are everybody's sort of job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me, let me speak to that. First of all, in this case, there were 96 depositions. 96 depositions. Wow. I was in one of them. <laughs> wow. Then I and Chantel will outwork five lawyers. That's one of them. 
That's amazing. They need the case inside out. I always tell people, my job here at the firm is I'm a figurehead. They just pop me up in front of the jury and right. tell the story. But they're the ones that do all the heavy lifting. They're the ones that do all the motions. They're the ones that they really do a magnificent job. So when we divide up the work, they do the hard work. They do all the witnesses, all the depositions, all the pretrial stuff, all that. Deny can read uh, Chantel's mind and my mind in trial. <laughs> We have this weird bond now. It's like, I know what he needs. I know what's coming. <laughs> yeah. I walk back to the council table to look for an exhibit. When I walk back there, deny hands it to me without me yeah. asking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so what we do is we think about the strengths and weaknesses of the witnesses and the strengths and uh, weaknesses of us because we have weak points. Okay. And so we decide, okay, uh, for example, I thought in this case, Chantel had a just a very close relationship with both and no amount of work on my part was ever going to replace that i was never going to be chantal in bo's life so it was an easy decision to make to have chantel do the direct of, of both then i had forged the relationship with some of the witnesses you know so we asked her to, to prepare for them so we we kind of do it that way. Um, usually I get the expert witnesses. I get to cross-examine them. And uh, so we so we look at each other. We decide, okay, what's the strength? What's our weaknesses? And how does that match up to a task or a witness at trial? And then we make that decision. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. We don't have one set way of doing it. Right. Right. Fluid, it really just depends on you know what we're getting, but it really is a team effort. And I think the bond that we have really helps us out in the long term. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Definitely. I, I think, oh, I think we were facing like what 36 motions of lemonade by right. the end. Yeah. And then we had 22 or something. So it was just <laughs> Daniel was on vacation. It was really I, a team effort. It was like, okay, I'm done. What do you need? You know, I need help with this, you know, and it, it worked out. Yeah. 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 And it, var yeah. it varies on the case too. Like depending on how we do things, like if there's not, if the motions in limine are manageable, then we might divide things up one way. If the motions in limine or pretrial motions or your scheduling order is really tight, then, you know, sometimes somebody is working on the written work while somebody's doing the witness witnesses, you know, prep demonstratives, that kind of thing. Um, but so that's why I was curious because we, a lot of times we're in teams of three lawyers on, on trials. And so I was curious how y'all do it. Now, one thing that we, we do for every trial is we do psychodrama before we start the trial to work and prepare our clients and, and for us to get to know our clients. So I'm always involved in the psychodrama along with both Denai and Chantel. So we always do psychodrama because that really helps you understand and connect with the people in your case. And surprisingly enough, even with the defendants, even though obviously they're not they're not physically participating in our psychodrama, through the magic of psychodrama, we have them in the room with us. Mm -hmm. And we get a chance to get to know them. We get to know what rocks your boat. 
We, we get to know what's important to them, what isn't important to them. And so when we do cross-examination of them, we know what buttons to push. Right. We, we pull right. the feelings out of that, um, and so I think that helps us in every aspect. Well, it's just a fantastic job by you guys, and uh, and and. Uh, I'm sorry that some of the things didn't go your way because it sounds like you guys are up on appeal now. So if you have to try it again, uh, uh, I wish you uh, wish you great luck on that. Um, <laughs> but um, is there anything else that we haven't talked about about this case that you want to make sure that our listeners have heard? Yeah, just kind of one point, and it's this. Unfortunately, tragically, now I'm using adverbs now. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, school shootings have become the norm. And the surprising thing is they were always the norm. School shootings have been around. The first recorded school shooting in the United States was 1767 or something like, like that, before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. There have always been school shootings. But now through the magic of social media and so forth, we hear about a shooting in New Zealand we know about it, the, the instant it happens here. So it's not a recent development. And school districts have known about it and have come up with systems, but they don't follow them. So my point is, these kinds of shootings are preventable if you start holding school districts accountable so that they just don't pay lip service to their threat assessment. Right. And they actually follow them. So it takes a trial like this for example, here locally, the school districts here, they always had a threat assessment. Now they're taking them seriously, whereas before they didn't. So sometimes the work that we do as trial lawyers really does benefit and help the community, which at the end of the day is the most gratifying thing any one of us as a trial lawyer can do. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. And, and you know, and, and sometimes it is the, um, uh, you know, have to put a defendant in a courtroom, have to hold them responsible that way for them to wake up and really uh, do something about it. So, uh, well, great job on this case, guys, and good luck on uh, on your appeal. Um, I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to uh, Daniel Rodriguez, Chantal Trujillo, and Denai Gonzalez from the Rodriguez, from Rodriguez and Associates, and you can look them up at rodriguezlaw.net. That's rodriguezlaw.net. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Yeah, you, you stay safe, too. Absolutely. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, 
or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.